thing in the world. Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing The Devil's Own Duke by Lenora Bell. This was just published in September of 2021 and is the second in the Wallflowers vs. Rogue series. And full disclosure, we did receive an advanced reader copy from NetGalley. And we also did review the first book in this series, Love is a Rogue. So this is one of many series I feel like we're in the middle of or have read about like a society of badass women. Yes. So there's the one that was the ladies something or other that had the chemistry society. Yes, the, the yes. There's the new Sarah McLean series. Yes. And there's this one. And there's this one. That are all about like explicit societies of women undermining the patriarchy. Correct. So just a heads up. I do think these series are all unique enough that yeah. I don't have problems telling them apart, but it's interesting to me that this is such a trend in series development right now. Yeah, it's in the air or something. And this one, I feel like, is the least well-explained society. I agree with you. So the, the chemistry one, obviously, is like women scientists working on science shit. Bombshell, it's like actually saving women. Right. And this one is women who are good at stuff. Yeah, they meet at like a salon and they lie and say they're knitting. Yeah, and they're not, they, so like you said, they're all good at stuff, but they're good at different things. Right, there's a vintner. Right. An etymologist. A lawyer. A lawyer. A perfumer. Mm -hmm. So they're, it's, it, they're more brought together by the fact that they're smart women who are willing to undermine the patriarchy than by any specific goal. Right. It's sort of like they couldn't be a part of their own professional association, so they made their own. But it's more of a catch-all. Right. So just if you're trying to keep track of all the ones we're reviewing and how the societies differ in their function, this is the one that takes place in an old sexy bookshop. Right. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> so the jacket. Lady Henrietta Prince is far too busy for romance. She's dedicated to her life turning her family vineyards into a profitable sparkling wine venture. But when she shares a thrilling kiss at midnight with a handsome stranger, she's captivated. Until he claims to be the distant heir to her father's dukedom. Ash Ellis is a gambler who lives life on the edge. Now he's locked his sights on a glittering prize and nothing will stand in his way. When Henrietta is forced to marry the wicked rogue to keep her beloved vineyards, she vows that Ash will never have her trust or her love, even if his kisses are more intoxicating than the finest champagne. His new bride is certainly beautiful, but biddable? Not so much. Ash will settle for nothing less than Henrietta's total surrender. But is he the one in danger of losing his heart? I say yes. Yeah, for sure. He is. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I wish there was more about the heir to the dukedom bits. I wish there was more about that. I wish there was a little more about him too. Like what, why does he, yes. he want, because it's, it's a, I mean, the main trope is presented in here, which is that he's, he has, presented himself as the heir to this, the long lost heir to the dukedom. And this, is he or isn't he? These are the two main tropes of this book. Long lost heir and marriage of convenience. Yeah. Like the romance trope is marriage of convenience. The plot trope is long lost heir. Mm-hmm. So 
I mean, those are, those do come across in the in the jacket. I just wish we had an idea of why he was doing. Yes, that. that's what I mean by I wish there was more context about him declaring himself heir, what his background was, where yes. he came from. Like the way this was presented, he could just be like a cousin who was lost at sea. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing about how he was raised and why he's so dark and now running a gambling hell. Trope. Trope. Alrighty, so as usual, we generated a random number and wrote our own summaries using that number for our word count. And today that random number is 39. My 39 word summary. Henrietta loves wine, and to keep her vineyard, she needs her dad to beget an heir. When an unsavory one pops up, of course they've already made out. Luckily, she's plucky and he's extremely hot, so they figure it out. I like it. Thank you. It's good. It's good. Mine follows a lot of the same, it's the same road that yours traveled. Okay. It's the worst when that guy you kissed at the ball turns out to be your dad's long-lost heir who's going to take all of your vineyards and turn them into horse pastures. If only you could convince him otherwise. So he actually wants to put the stables where the vineyards <laughs> currently are? Excuse me. But wait, the stables can't be as big as a vineyard. Meg, that was one of many questions I had about this book. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I used the wrong word, but I used the right word because you can't put just a stable there. It has to be, it has to be a pasture. Um, yeah, so tropes. So we already said marriage convenience and long lost air. There's a little bit of contract negotiations tied into the marriage of convenience, though if I am being honest, it was under executed. Yeah. I, I could have done with a little bit more sex negotiation. Yeah, sex negotiation is always good. Mm. Oh, almost always good. <laughs> sad, tragic orphan. They are both sort of sad, tragic orphans. So he's an orphan and she's got a dead mom. Yep. He was given up to foundling homes as a small child. Uh -huh. He has vague memories of a maternal figure. Right. So it's unclear exactly when he was given up to the foundling homes. He was put to work at the age of eight. And then got taken in by a swindler, joined some sorts of gang adjacent groups of, you know, artists. basically what you do in Regency slash Victorian England, if you go to a, a foundling home. And then become powerful. Right. You know, like, so he's... Ended up, he and his friend got out of the weird swindler gang they were in and founded this gambling house. He insists it's not a hell, but... It is. It is. Can we just... Is that every trope? Is, like, is that the main trope in romance right now? I think it is. Like, if he's not going to be a blue blood, or even if he is going to be a blue blood, he runs a gambling house. Yeah, he runs a gambling hell. And, yeah, I don't know. It's... It is every book these days. So <laughs> this is a romance novel. This is a historical romance novel. This is, I think, so I'm going to come, I'll, this will be a thing I come back through in quality in general, but I think it ties into a lot of these tropes. This book felt really rushed Yeah. in a lot of its points. So like we were saying in the book jacket, we wish they'd gone into a bit more about his backstory. I wish they'd done a bit more about how this gambling hell got started. Yeah. There's a lot of vague, mysterious pre prevaricating about 
what they did as teens. Yeah. But I really wanted them to delve more into the gambling hell, how it got started, the types of clientele it had, whether or not it was profitable, what his money-making ventures were, because that ends up being really relevant. Yeah. And it's if he's selling his stakes in the hell, I'm not really sure what his other business ventures are. Yeah, no, we... I don't know. And I feel like a lot of the other books about gambling hells really... I just merged gambling and gaming into word one word. Gaming hells really delve into the rags to riches story or the way they make their money or the way they make their reputation. And this one sort of, I think, took for granted that you knew the trope and yeah. didn't do much to actually explain how it was working here. Oh, how interesting. That's a really interesting point. And I think you are correct. I think Lenora Bell assumed that you have a working knowledge of the gaming hell trope and was like, you can fill in the rest. And I think that happened. This is a short book. It is. I liked a lot about it, but I think even through most of these tropes, I'm going to end up saying, I wish it, there had been more in this way because. Yeah. Uh, so as you can guess, because he is running a gaming hell, he's a bad dude with a heart of gold. And how is that heart of gold telegraphed? Well, you know cats can tell who good people are, right? <laughs> Obviously. Well, this so, so can uh, Henrietta's cat. Well, it's not Henrietta's cat in this one. So she, oh, it's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. she breaks into his house yes. for reasons of plot and discovers that he has yes. a very, like, it's described as like a prissy Persian cat. But he doesn't have the cat. The cat just hangs around because he can't help but feed it. No, it was given to him by a former lover. Oh, well, then I obviously don't remember anything about this fucking cat. <laughs> so he, she goes in and he's got this like very like pampered, not muscled, clearly not working hat, cat. And he clearly adores her, even though he insults her. And she makes a passing reference to like, where did you get this thing? And he's like, a former mistress gave her to me before she ran off to France with another guy. But I've been spoiling her rotten and have changed her name to Lucifer. And Luc this <gasps> That's another cat. Amanda Quick cat. Yep. But they call, but it's a girl. So she insists he calls her Lucy. So it's different. And as he comes around to calling her Lucy is the evidence of his character arc. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You're, I mean, you are a hundred percent correct. <laughs> oh gosh. So obviously with long lost air tropes, there usually is a very strong family resemblance. Mm -hmm. There's usually some sort of distinctive marking or family story. Yep. All of that is present here, even though he's like a seventh cousin once removed, yep. which is obviously necessary. <laughs> In order for a modern audience to be like, yay, love story. <laughs> yes, of course. But they look freakishly alike. Yeah, they do. It's not, it's not an ideal situation. There. Uh, she is a daughter who managed the estate because her father's a deadbeat. Her father was such a deadbeat. I don't know if he could be redeemed. No, he was the worst. And I will go into that at further length later. Um, extension of that. She gave up her chance to be a debutante and sacrificed herself to save the estate and is now particularly pissed off. Yep. That Although, her father's heir died. I mean, yes, but also she seems to be very short-sighted yes. in having done this. Like, I don't want to, like, totally rip on this women's society or whatever, but Henrietta in particular doesn't seem to have much of a forward-thinking view. Well, I think there's a really easy way to fix it. Um, so Downton Abbey, as you'll know, dear listeners, Meg is blankly looking at me. Uh, okay. I mean, we've talked about this. I did watch 
the first two seasons. Right, so the first episode. Okay. When the Crawley heir dies on the Titanic. Yeah. Mary had been engaged to him. Right. That was the plan. Correct. So when the heir dies, that's why Mary's future also goes spiraling. Yes. I think if the third cousin or whatever that was supposed to be your dad's heir... I mean, I think if Henrietta had just been engaged yeah. to the cousin who died, so you understand why she'd invested. Like, she says the cousin who was the heir had already agreed to, like, let her stay on a steward, basically. Yeah, but... but that's still not long-term security, because no. the cousin's older. Like, just make her engaged to his heir, and then at least you understand why yeah. she's been willing to put all our eggs in this one or basket. are the vineyards entailed? Could, could the father have changed his mind at the last minute and said, instead of, I'm not giving them to you, they're your dowry... Yeah. You know, so she's got to marry someone to keep the vineyards. Yeah, I just, but anything. It would have taken like one extra paragraph to make this not, she just trusted that this one cousin was going to keep his word whenever he inherited. And that's why she's put everything into these vineyards. I was frustrated with the short-sightedness of that. With many people in this scenario. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. There is a grand gesture. It was a cute grand gesture, I have to admit. It was. So she runs the vineyards, and her whole goal is not just to keep them, but to then raise the prestige prestige of not just her vineyard, but English wine in general. Megan, I have a lot of thoughts about this. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. But um, so the grand gesture involves her vineyards more than her heart. And what I loved is they were in a relatively good place yeah. when he makes the grand gesture. Yes, yes, it's not yes. a grand gesture to win her back. Yes, And absolutely. I loved that. I, I think it was my favorite part of the book, honestly. Yeah. And that's saying something. He did, he acted a little bit high-handed, but not terribly. And also, I don't care. And also, I don't care. <laughs> So she loves her land and she needs to convince him to love it. He should love it as well. Because once they agree to get married, she knows that he owns her, as we talked about a lot. So her only shot at keeping the life that she's always wanted and known is to convince him to see the land as she does and the potential as she does. Yeah. And, you know, he's a city, city boy. He's grown up on the streets, on the mean streets. He just doesn't have a connection. Right. With the land, Lane. And he even points out that he sees it differently. He sees it as the symbol of class oppression. Indeed. Could he be an heir with big plans to change the estate? Nay, the whole English system? (laughs) Yes, he could be. (laughs) Um, There's a makeover montage, except it's him, not her. So I, I I liked the reversal of expectations. I didn't love it. Really? I like that scene. What didn't you like about it? I don't know. I didn't like the foot. I didn't like... (sighs) I wanted you to get new clothes and stuff. Mm. I am more annoyed with, like, body modification. Okay. So, that's all. And it's not like... like, (laughs) He didn't get, like, a tattoo or, like, an eye ring. Guys, he got a manicure and a haircut. And didn't they pluck his eyebrows, too? They, like, trimmed his nose hair. (laughs) I don't know. And I, like, cleaned I, up his eyebrows. I just didn't. Sorry, when you said body modification, I guess I don't see tweezing your eyebrows as body modification. I mean, it's not. But there, <laughs> what other word is there for it? De- de- depilation, I guess? Yeah. Like, grooming? Grooming. I don't know. I, I, tweezing your eyebrows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, I didn't love it. It was weird. I, 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 I recognize that it was very weird of me. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was cute. Um, I understood the point she was making. I think some of the points in this book were made a little bit too explicitly. I, I think that was But about issue. the clothes making the man. Yes. And like needing to look the part to play the part. Yes. And I thought he took it with good humor on the whole. Yeah. And I thought it was a cute scene between them. So overall, I liked it. I, I liked it better in When a Rogue Meets His Match. Okay. I'll just put it that way. Because okay. I, you, I mean, in that episode, I went like into raptures about it, basically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a waltz and a garden fondle. <laughs> First scene of the book. She dived right in. I was into it. Same. All right. Opened up strong. Opened up strong. And then finally, our new feature, Ash Alert. <laughs> so the, he knows his name is Ash. He goes by Ash Ellis. Where did Ellis come from? No idea. However, as we said, he has vague memories of a youth, of his mother calling him Ash, of being told he was a prince, which as you, her last name, her family name is Prince. So he, what he thought was like a mother's romantic mumblings were actual facts about himself. Yeah. Um, and so the long lost heir's name is presumed to be Ashwood. You're right. So Ash alert. Ash alert. Okay. Quality. I felt similarly to this book, to how I did to the first book in the series, which that it was very surface. There were a lot of ideas, but that weren't delved into super deeply. I liked that in the first book. Mm -hmm. I agree with the criticism more with this one. Yeah. So, I don't know. I I really, really, really like the ideas about that that happen in this book and I wish that I liked the writing and the characters and, and the dialogue and everything else better. Yeah. Also on the list of like mild criticisms, her dad went too far in he the neglectful parent direction. He was the worst. He was horrific. Not only was he basically in a morose pit of widow or hood and letting her manage the estates. It turns out he was doctoring the books. And giving her fake books yes. while he spent all the money. And all of that didn't quite check out. Like, it didn't quite make sense to me how that was working. He also had this secret mistress. I was like, not only decided that. decided yes. to marry, thus tarnishing her reputation. And I'm all for the love wins narrative. But the way they spoke to each other was gross. Yeah. And he even callously says to his daughter, we're taking your honeymoon. Yeah. Like, he just sucked. He there was, was terrible. No, and there wasn't even a moment between the two of them where you understood why she'd sort of been so long suffering right. in her relationship with him, right. even if she liked managing the estate. I needed more from that dynamic. Like overall, I felt like he just blew. Yes. He was, he was really, really terrible. I needed more to be explained there about what their relationship had been. Cause even when she reflected on when her mother was alive and her mother died when she was 17. So it wasn't some childhood trauma. She didn't reflect on, like, a happy childhood spent with both of her parents. It was her mother. Like, I do not understand the bond she felt with her dad at all. And then let's talk about the fact that she runs the vineyard. Mm -hmm. You're made to understand she runs the financial aspects of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. How in the world her father could be so drunk that he's gambling the, their livelihood away and keeping this mistress and sort of shown to be a lackadaisical nightmare. Mm -hmm. But forge the books convincingly for her? Mm-hmm. Well, she, they talk a big game about how she's so good at business, but I'm like, she didn't? Um, 
nailed down her future. And she couldn't figure out these books. So I'm a little hesitant to say she's a great businesswoman. Yeah, this was a little more told and not shown. So didn't love that. And then there's, all right. I love wine. Uh-huh. But I am not a wine snob. I am not the person who's going to tell you, like, don't pair this with that. Like, I might be aghast at Chardonnay with steak, but that's because I personally think Chardonnay is disgusting. Um, <laughs> she would be aghast at Chardonnay with anything, guys. Yeah, I'd be disgusted at Chardonnay with anything. But I think the best wine is the wine you like. Yeah. So I'm all for people trying to promote new world wines over old world wines. Sure. If that's what you like. Not to say I don't like old world wines. <laughs> there is a reason. You're going to offend someone, Lane. <laughs> there is a reason that England is not known for its wine, and it is stated in the book, and I don't really understand how I was supposed to believe this isn't a problem. So basically, Wine 101, when, wine, when rain happens in a wine grape's development, has a massive impact on the taste. Uh -huh. You want a lot of rain early in the season to promote growth, and then you actually want relatively dry toward the end of the growing season so that the flavors in the grapes themselves get really concentrated and not overwatered. Because if they get a ton of water at the end, literally the grapes swell like balloons and they end up watery. And you know what that tastes like from a grocery store grape. Uh-huh. So it rains a lot in England. So she spends <laughs> the whole book being like, okay, we're in the last month of the growing season. We really need it not to rain. And they get lucky and it doesn't. So they're going to have like the best vintage ever. Where the fuck in England does she live? It's like an extreme microclimate, apparently. Like, <laughs> There's one estate. Well, so on the one hand, I get it. She needs this one estate. She can't just like go somewhere else and buy a new estate because apparently she's in the one spot in England <laughs> that like has this perfect weather pattern for wine. Yeah. It's like, no, like, like I said, I could talk about wine snobbery shit. I don't think it matters here. Yeah. But like, okay, you can taste the soil. Great. I don't think that actually like is the definition of a good or a bad wine or like where, but fundamentally no one will dispute too much wine late kills wine's country. And so what in, she's going to put all of her money into this vin, this vineyard. And then it's going to get like 10 rainy years in a row because it's <laughs> fucking England. Like, how is this a smart business venture? Yeah, I know. Like I'm I... not disputing. She couldn't brew 50 good bottles in a randomly good year. I'm saying, when the fuck is a good year? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. I, I had my own issues with it because I, I will drink some wine sometimes. I don't love wine. Like, wine is fine. I don't know. But I, I have said before, my husband is French. And his, as everyone knows, French culture is, like, super into wine. And I am just sick of it. That's all I have to say. I'm just like, oh my God, stop telling me about wine and how important the land is and tell why and blah, blah, blah. So just the fact that she did wine, I was like already kind of prejudiced against her. So I'm just going to be full disclosure here. I really dislike reading about making wine. Whereas wine fuels like half these podcasts <laughs> because I'm drinking it because while we're recording it. podcast. <laughs> Because I am drinking through most of our recordings because I drink most Sunday nights, not out of some sort of I need to cope. <laughs> because this podcast, guys, it no. just drives us, <laughs> drives us to drink. No, because my average Sunday is two glasses of red. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't hate the concept of her being a wino. 
<laughs> I, I just, I wish she'd like been importing the grapes. <laughs> Like, it's the barrels. I just, I think, or like doing the mix, mixing and blending herself yeah. I don't, and the aging herself. I don't know, you guys. I just, I find it very hard to believe this is a smart business venture. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, this is adding on to the like, okay, girl, you had no real life plan as like about security. You don't know what's going on with the books. And this is a very risky investment. No matter how good you are as a vintner. Like, this is a very risky investment. And it's true. you explain why in the text. Right. And don't explain that it rains fucking constantly right. in England. Like, I don't want to be a jerk, but, like, maybe racehorses is kind of a good idea. <laughs> I know it's, you know, crushing her dreams the way she crushes the grapes. Just, like, but keep a couple of them on the hill. Or, like, <laughs> what do you, I'm just picturing, like, a bunch of umbrellas. I don't know. What's your plan? Oh my god! It's really, she she did not come off as the most astute business person. Oh, uh, anything else about like the text as a whole, the story as a whole? What do you think of their love story? I I I I feel like I'm gonna say this every time. I I wanted more. I I didn't understand why they fell in love, and I would have liked more of it. Yeah, th- this was definitely. A marriage of convenience plus lust. Mm-hmm. And I got that. I even got why she logicked herself into agreeing to the marriage. Yeah. I understood why he saw something in it for him. Sure. I got why they learned to love having sex with each other. Yes. I'm not quite sure when that like moment of true love happened. Yeah. I was sort of okay hand-waving it away. Yeah. I will say, I mentioned this before, I will say it again, the grand gesture was great. Even though it had to do a lot with wine, which I just apparently am a wine Grinch. <laughs> but I really like the... Well, the ending is also the wine Grinch is getting it stuck to it's him. also very true, yes. So I did like that. Well, I actually love the whole ending sequence. So there's yeah. this big grand gesture where they stick it to the wine Grinches. Then there's a really hot sex scene. Yeah. And then there's a resolution to the big dangerous conflict that's been like hanging its bad omens over him for years. Right. And she's not a damsel in distress. Yeah. They do it together. The conflicts between them are totally resolved in that moment, but it was still a high stakes moment. I like, I really liked the ending of this. Yeah. The ending was why I think my overall feelings about this book trend positive. I just wish it had had a little bit more substance. Yeah. Leading up to that moment, because if you'd convinced me they were in love, if you'd convinced me she wasn't secretly kind of dumb, if you'd convinced me he actually had the money he needed to restore an impoverished dukedom, like, if, and that had sort of all been built out in their characterization, I think this ending could have been really satisfying. I agree. So did anything offend you about this book? Is there anything that needs a trigger warning? I think trigger warning more than offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's systemic child abuse. He was raised, as we said, as a sad, tragic orphan, working in very dangerous situations, working in criminal situations. And he is very honest about the aristocracies and specifically her family's complicity mm-hmm. in that um, and how it is a systemic issue in the country it's really what he wants to become a duke to reform right um why duke was his best option good question i don't Um, know i mean he had a lot of money on his own right he could have just instead of 
getting a dukedom and putting money into the dukedom, he could have just like run for parliament, you know, lobby or become a lobbyist. Whatever that Whatever. equivalent was. Yeah. He's too hot to be a lobbyist. Sorry, K Street. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we're some DC girls. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so just, I think, trigger warning. It, not only is the abuse he suffered, including like beatings, mm-hmm. made very clear in the text, but I think rightfully, Lenora Bell calls out the fact that it is a cultural issue as yes. a whole and all of England's upper class is benefiting from the abuse of children. Exactly. Yes. They're, they're all complicit. Yeah. Anything else? I mean, his mom's situation. Yeah. So his parents, um, were apparently secretly married, which is why he's legitimate. Right. Even though his mom was like a maid that the owner of the house's son knocked up Mm -hmm. and he immediately like forgets her after knocking her up and she dies forgotten and destitute in some backwater to the point that her son gets given away. Yeah. Like it's very sad. It is very sad. Was this book sexy? It starts out and you feel like it's going to be really sexy because they make out at the ball. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm into this. Yeah. But then, so then they don't, there's a lot of like hot steamy moments of t- sexual tension, but nothing that's acted upon until they agree to this marriage of convenience, which is like halfway through the book. Right. It takes a long time for them to agree. And I'm like, I feel like it, in a marriage of convenience book, you should get married in, by the fifth chapter. Yeah. Then the wedding night was hot, though it didn't technically consummate the relationship. Which is fine. Which is fine. And then the rest of the sex scenes through to the end of the book they don't consummate the relationship, which I sort of liked. Yeah. Um, I liked the way it really laid heavy into consent. Yes. I liked that they didn't consummate the relationship until they were at 100% honesty. With yeah, I agree. I liked that choice to wait until they were both, had both been completely honest with each other. And I, so, and I think the scenes that existed were hot. I agree with you where this suffers is it's a marriage of convenience trope and you better be banging all book. Like that's, that's point that's the point <laughs> for marriage of convenience come on the point of the marriage of convenience is that you have to share it there's only one bed you have to share it right like and once again i would have been fine if they put up the consummation yeah but, but like i needed them not keeping their hands off each other thank you from the very be- especially from the very beginning. not only that but like because this didn't really factor into the plot but they're also caught making out they weren't forced to marry that's not the trope here so like it, it wasn't really worth mentioning in tropes but if you told me they're caught making out in the first chapter and then they're forced into and then they, they enter into a marriage of convenience that involves a sex contract negotiation, I'd be like, oh, so this is a sex book. Yeah. And this is no, not a sex book. Not a sex book, guys. So like hot when it's there. When it's there. Yeah. But just know what it is. Yeah. I agree. There's also one scene where they're out walking the vines so for like <laughs> him to see the grapes or whatever. And then they're going to go to like a luncheon yes. where she's going to show off the... Yes. And the luncheon itself is very hot. Yeah. But there's a moment in between when they're just like in the foyer and with no preamble, no foreplay, no kiss, he just gets on his knees and goes up her skirt. Yeah. And I was like... What? And they get interrupted. So like, it's not like that whole scene plays out, but it was a little bit of a moment. It's like, you're not going to... It wasn't a sexy moment before he just that. hit his knees. And I was like, I mean, don't get me wrong love a hot guy on his knees but like i could have used a little bit of like a build up to this moment you know even we readers like foreplay you know yeah 
And then it was made up for in the wine tasting scene. Right. But... Just but saying. I just, I needed him to be, like, even I was like, what? And sometimes the heroine's like, oh, I'm turned on, but what are you doing because of my sensibilities? This wasn't that. This uh-uh. was literally like, why are you on the ground? Is there I a don't point get there? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but overall, sexy. Yeah. Uh, overall, like, this is a fun book. Fun concept. Yeah. I think it fell short on the execution in a couple places, yeah. but like popcorny beach read with a really satisfying ending. And frankly, I think so often with these sort of tropey, fun, but not super memorable books, I end up saying love the book, but the ending was meh. So frankly, the fact that that's reverted is that's really refreshing. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. I-, I think I liked it a little bit less than you did. But, I mean, again, it wasn't offensive, and it was a quick read. So I'm not, like, disappointed that I read it. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening. We'd love it if you would rate, review, subscribe. 